Chapters 6 through 15 of Book 3 of On the Parts of Animals by Aristotle. Translated by William Ogle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Geoffrey Edwards. Chapter 6 The Lung, then, is an organ found in all the animals of a certain class because they live on land for there must of necessity be some or other means of cooling down the heat of the body and in sanguineous animals as they are of an especially hot nature the cooling agency must be an external one whereas in the bloodless kinds the innate spirit is sufficient of itself for the purpose the external cooling agent must be either air or water in fishes the agent is water fishes therefore never have a lung but have gills in its place as was stated in the treatise on respiration but animals that breathe are cooled by air these therefore are all provided with a lung all land animals breathe and even some water animals such as the whale the dolphin and all the spouting cetacea for many animals lie halfway between terrestrial and aquatic some that are terrestrial and that inspire air being nevertheless of such a bodily constitution that they abide for the most time in the water and some that are aquatic partaking so largely of the land character that respiration constitutes for them the main condition of life the organ of respiration is the lung this derives its motion from the heart but it is its own large size and spongy texture that affords amplitude of space for the entrance of the breath for when the lung rises up the breath streams in and is again expelled when the lung contracts it has been stated but incorrectly that it is to the lung that the beating of the heart is due that this is not so is shown by the phenomenon of palpitation occurring so to speak in man alone inasmuch as man alone is influenced by hope and expectation again in most animals the heart is at a distance from the lung and placed above it so that its beating can in no degree be brought about by this latter the lung differs much in different animals for in some it is of large size and contains blood while in others it is smaller and of spongy texture in the vivipara it is large and rich in blood because of their natural heat while in the ovipara it is small and dry but capable of expanding to a vast extent when inflated among terrestrial animals the oviparous quadrupeds such as lizards tortoises and the like have this kind of lung and among inhabitants of the air the animals known as birds for in all these the lung is spongy and like foam 
for it is bladdery and collapses from a large bulk to a small one as does foam when it runs together in this too lies the explanation of the fact that these animals are little liable to thirst and drink but sparingly and that they are able to remain for a considerable time under water for inasmuch as they have but little heat the very motion of the lung air-like and void suffices by itself to cool them for a considerable period these animals speaking generally are also distinguished from others by their smaller bulk for heat promotes growth and abundance of blood is a sure indication of heat heat again tends to make the body erect and thus it is that man is the most erect of animals and the vivipara more erect than other quadrupeds for no viviparous animal be it apodous or be it possessed of feet is so given to creep into holes as are the ovipara the lung then exists for respiration and this is its universal office but the amount of blood it contains and its structure generally varies with the requirements of different groups of animals there is however no one term to denote all animals that have a lung no designation that is like the term bird applicable to the whole of a certain class yet the possession of a lung is a part of their essence just as much as the presence of certain characters constitutes the essence of a bird chapter seven of the viscera some appear to be single as the heart and lung others to be double as the kidneys while of a third kind it is doubtful in which class they should be reckoned for the liver and the spleen would seem to lie halfway between the single and the double organs for they may be regarded either as constituting each a single organ or as a pair of organs resembling each other in character in reality however all the organs are double the reason for this is that the body itself is double consisting of two halves which are however combined together under one supreme centre for there is an upper and a lower half a front and a rear a right side and a left this explains why it is that even the brain and the several organs of sense tend in all animals to consist of two parts and the same explanation applies to the heart with its cavities the lung again in ovipara is divided to such an extent that these animals look as though they had actually two lungs as to the kidneys no one can overlook their double character but when we come to the liver and the spleen any one might fairly be in doubt the reason of this is that in animals that necessarily have a spleen this organ is such that it might be taken for a kind of bastard liver while in those in which a spleen is not an actual necessity but is merely present as it were by way of token in an extremely minute form the liver plainly consists of two parts of which the larger tends to lie on the right side 
and the smaller on the left not but what there are some ovipara in which this condition is comparatively indistinctly marked while on the other hand there are some vivipara in which the liver is manifestly divided into two parts examples of such division are furnished by the hairs of certain regions that have the appearance of having two livers and by some fishes especially the cartilaginous kinds it is the position of the liver on the right side of the body that is the main cause for the formation of the spleen the existence of which thus becomes to a certain extent a matter of necessity in all animals though not of very stringent necessity the reason then why the viscera are bilateral is as we have said that there are two sides to the body a right and a left for each of these sides aims at similarity with the other and so likewise do their several viscera and as the sides though dual are knit together into unity so also do the viscera tend to be bilateral and yet one by unity of constitution those viscera which lie below the diaphragm exist one and all on account of the blood vessels serving as a bond by which these vessels while floating freely are yet held in connection with the body for the vessels give off branches which run to the body through the outstretched structures like so many anchor lines thrown out from a ship the great vessel sends such branches to the liver the spleen and the kidneys and these viscera the liver and spleen on either side and the kidneys behind attach the great vessel immovably to the body the aorta sends similar branches to the kidneys but none to the liver nor to the spleen these viscera then contribute in this manner to the compactness of the animal body the liver and spleen assist moreover in the concoction of the food for both are rich in blood and therefore of a hot character the kidneys on the other hand take part in the separation of the excretion which flows into the bladder the heart then and the liver are essential constituents of every animal the liver that it may effect concoction the heart that it may lodge the central source of heat for some or other part there must be which like a hearth shall hold the kindling fire and this part must be well protected seeing that it is as it were the citadel of the body all sanguineous animals then need these two parts and this explains why these two viscera and these two alone are invariably found in them all in such of them however as breathe there is also as invariably a third namely the lung the spleen on the other hand is not invariably present and in those animals that have it is only present of necessity in the same sense as the excretions of the belly and of the bladder are necessary in the sense that is of being an inevitable concomitant therefore it is that in some animals the spleen is but scantily developed as regards size 
This, for instance, is the case in such feathered animals as have a hot stomach. Such are the pigeon, the hawk, and the kite. It is the case also in oviparous quadrupeds, where the spleen is excessively minute, and in many of the scaly fishes. These same animals are also without a bladder, because the loose texture of their flesh allows the residual fluid to pass through and to be converted into feathers and scales. For the spleen attracts the residual humours from the stomach, and, owing to its blood-like character, is enabled to assist in their concoction. Should, however, this residual fluid be too abundant, or the heat of the spleen be too scanty, the body becomes sickly from over-repletion with food. Often, too, when the spleen is affected by disease, the belly becomes hard, owing to the reflux into it of the fluid, just as happens to those who form too much urine, for they also are liable to a similar diversion of the fluids into the belly. But in those animals that have but little superfluous fluid to excrete, such as birds and fishes, the spleen is never large, and in some exists no more than by way of token. So also in the oviparous quadrupeds it is small, compact, and like a kidney, for their lung is spongy, and they drink but little, and such superfluous fluid as they have is diverted to the formation of feathers. On the other hand, in such animals as have a bladder, and whose lung contains blood, the spleen is watery, both for the reason already mentioned, and also because the left side of the body is more watery and colder than the right. For each of two contraries has been so placed as to go together with that which is akin to it in another pair of contraries. Thus right and left, hot and cold, are pairs of contraries, and right is conjoined with hot, after the manner described, and left with cold. The kidneys, when they are present, exist not of actual necessity, but as matters of greater finish and perfection. For by their special character they are suited to serve in the excretion of the fluid which collects in the bladder. In animals, therefore, where this fluid is very abundantly formed, their presence enables the bladder to perform its proper office with greater perfection. Since then both kidneys and bladder exist in animals for one and the same function, we must next treat of the bladder, though in so doing we disregard the due order of succession in which the parts should be enumerated. For not a word has yet been said of the midriff, which, though not one of the viscera, is yet one of the parts that environ them, and has to be considered with them. Chapter 8. It is not every animal that has a bladder those only being apparently intended by nature to have one whose lung contains blood. To such it was but reasonable that she should give this part, for the character of their lung, with its abundant blood, causes them to be the thirstiest of animals, and makes them require a more than ordinary quantity, not merely of solid, but also of liquid nutriment. 
this increased consumption necessarily entails the production of an increased amount of residue which thus becomes too abundant to be concocted by the stomach and excreted with its own residual matter the residual fluid must therefore of necessity have a receptacle of its own and thus it comes to pass that all animals whose lung contains blood are provided with a bladder those animals on the other hand that are without a lung of this character and that either drink but sparingly owing to their lung being of a spongy texture or that never imbibe fluid at all for drinking's sake but only as nutriment insects for instance and fishes and that are moreover clad with feathers or scales or scaly plates all these animals owing to the small amount of fluid which they imbibe and owing also to such residue as there may be being converted into feathers and the like are invariably without a bladder the tortoises which are comprised among animals with scaly plates form the only exception and this is merely due to the imperfect development of their natural conformation the explanation of the matter being that in the sea tortoises the lung is flesh-like and contains blood resembling the lung of the ox and that in the land tortoises it is of larger size in comparison with the bulk of the body than in other animals of the same class moreover inasmuch as the covering which invests them is dense and shell-like so that the moisture cannot exhale through the porous flesh as it does in birds and in snakes and other animals with scaly plates such an amount of secretion is formed that some special part is required to receive and hold it this then is the reason why these animals alone of their kind have a bladder the sea tortoises a large one the land tortoises an extremely small one chapter nine what has been said of the bladder is equally true of the kidneys for these also are wanting in all animals that are clad with feathers or with scales or with plates the sea and land tortoises forming the only exception in some of the birds however there are flattened kidney-like bodies as though the flesh allotted to the formation of the kidneys unable to find one single place of sufficient size had been distributed over several regions the emis has neither bladder nor kidneys for the softness of its shell allows of the ready transpiration of fluid and for this reason neither of the organs mentioned exists in this animal all other animals however whose lung contains blood are as before said provided with kidneys for nature uses these organs for two separate purposes namely for the excretion of the residual fluid and to subserve the blood vessels a channel leading to them from the great vessel in the centre of the kidney is a cavity of variable size this is the case in all animals excepting the seal the kidneys of this animal are more solid than those of any other and in form resemble the kidneys of the ox 
the human kidneys are of similar shape, being as it were made up of numerous small kidneys, and not presenting one unbroken surface like the kidneys of sheep and other quadrupeds. For this reason, should the kidneys of a man be once attacked by disease, the malady is not easily expelled, for it is as though many kidneys were diseased and not merely one, which naturally enhances the difficulties of a cure. The duct which runs to the kidney from the great vessel does not terminate in the central cavity, but is expended in the substance of the organ, so that there is no blood in the cavity, nor is any coagulum found there after death. A pair of stout ducts, void of blood, run, one from the cavity of each kidney, to the bladder, and other ducts, strong and continuous, lead into the kidneys from the aorta. The purpose of this arrangement is to allow the superfluous fluid to pass from the blood vessel into the kidney, and the resulting renal excretion to collect by the percolation of the fluid through the solid substance of the organ in its centre, where, as a general rule, there is a cavity. This, by the way, explains why the kidney is the most ill-savoured of all the viscera. From the central cavity the fluid is discharged into the bladder by the ducts just mentioned, having already assumed in great degree the character of residuum. The bladder is, as it were, moored to the kidneys, for, as already has been mentioned, it is attached to them by strong ducts. These, then, are the purposes for which the kidneys exist, and such the functions of these organs. In all animals that have kidneys, that on the right is placed higher than that on the left. For, inasmuch as motion commences from the right, the organs on this side become stronger than those on the left, and must all push forward in advance of their opposite fellows, as may be seen in the fact that men even raise the right eyebrow more than the left, and that the former is more arched than the latter. The right kidney, being thus drawn upwards, is brought into contact with the liver, for the liver in all animals lies on the right side. Of all the viscera, the kidneys are those that have the most fat. This is in the first place the result of necessity, because the kidneys are the parts through which the residual matters percolate. For the blood, which is left behind after this excretion, being of pure quality, is of easy concoction, and the final result of thorough blood concoction is lard and suet. For just as a certain amount of heat is left in the ashes of solid substances, such as wood after combustion, so also does a remnant of the heat that has been developed remain in fluids after concoction, and this is the reason why oily matter is light and floats on the surface of other fluids. The fat is not formed in the kidneys themselves, the density of their substance forbidding this, but is deposited on their external surface. It consists of lard or of suet, according as the animal's fat is of the former or latter character. 
the difference between these two kinds of fat has already been set forth in other passages the formation then of fat in the kidneys is the result of necessity being as explained a consequence of the necessary conditions which accompany the possession of such organs but at the same time the fat has a final cause namely to ensure the safety of the kidneys and to maintain their natural heat for placed as these organs are close to the surface they require a greater supply of heat than other parts for while the back is thickly covered with flesh so as to form a shield for the heart and neighbouring viscera the loins in accordance with a rule that applies to all joints are destitute of flesh and fat is therefore formed as a substitute for it so that the kidneys may not be without protection the kidneys moreover by being fat are the better enabled to secrete and concoct their fluid for fat is hot and it is heat that affects concoction such then are the reasons why the kidneys are fat but in all animals the right kidney is less fat than its fellow the reason for this is that the parts on the right side are naturally more solid and more suited for motion than those on the left but motion is antagonistic to fat for it tends to melt it animals then as a general rule derive advantage from their kidneys being fat and the fat is often very abundant and extends over the whole of these organs but should the like occur in the sheep death ensues be its kidneys however as fat as they may they are never so fat but that some part if not in both at any rate in the right one is left free the reason why sheep are the only animals that suffer in this manner or suffer more than others is that their fat is harder and more abundant than that of other animals for the soft lard of which the fat of some animals is composed is of fluid consistence so that there is not the same chance in their case of wind getting shut in and causing mischief but it is to such an enclosure of wind that rot is due and thus even in men though it is beneficial to them to have fat kidneys yet should these organs become overfat and diseased deadly pains ensue as to those animals whose fat consists of suet their suet is not so dense as that of sheep neither is it nearly so abundant for of all animals there is none in which the kidneys become so soon gorged with fat as in the sheep rot then is produced by the moisture and the wind getting shut up in the kidneys and is a malady that carries off sheep with great rapidity for the disease forthwith reaches the heart passing thither by the aorta and the great vessel the ducts which connect these with the kidneys being of unbroken continuity chapter ten we have now dealt with the heart and the lung as also with the liver spleen and kidneys the latter are separated from the former by the midriff or as some call it the phrenis this divides off the heart and lung and as already said 
is called phrenis in sanguineous animals, all of which have a midriff, just as they all have a heart and a liver. For they require a midriff to divide the region of the heart from the region of the stomach, so that the centre wherein abides the sensory soul may be undisturbed, and not be overwhelmed, directly food is taken by its upstreaming vapour, and by the abundance of heat then superinduced. For it was to guard against this that nature made a division, constructing the midriff as a kind of partition wall and fence, and so separated the nobler from the less noble parts, in all cases where a separation of upper and lower was possible. For the upper part is the more honourable, and is that for the sake of which the rest exists, while the lower part exists for the sake of the upper, and constitutes the necessary element in the body, inasmuch as it is the recipient of the food. That part of the midriff which is near the ribs is somewhat fleshy and thick, but the central part has more of a membranous character, for this structure gives it strength and capability of extension. Now that the midriff is, as it were, a curtain or screen to prevent heat mounting up from below, is shown by what happens should it, owing to its proximity to the stomach, attract thence the hot and residual fluid. For when this occurs, there ensues forthwith a marked disturbance of intellect and of sensation. It is indeed because of this that the midriff is called phrenes, as though it had some share in the process of thinking, for which the Greek term is phronein. In reality, however, it has no part whatsoever itself in the matter, but lying in close proximity to organs that have, it brings about the manifest changes of intelligence in question by acting upon them. This too explains why its central part is thin. For, though this is in some measure the result of necessity, inasmuch as those portions of the fleshy whole which lie nearest to the ribs must necessarily be fleshier than the rest, yet besides this there is a final cause, namely to give it as small a proportion of moisture as possible. For, had it been made of flesh throughout, it would have been more likely to attract and hold a large amount of fluid. That rapid heating of it affects sensation in a notable manner is shown by the phenomena of laughing. For when men are tickled, they are quickly set a-laughing, because the motion quickly reaches this region, and even when the heating is more slowly applied, there is still a manifest affection and motion of the intellect in opposition to the will. That man alone is affected by tickling is due firstly to the delicacy of his skin, and secondly to the fact that he is the only animal that laughs. For to be tickled is to be set in laughter, the laughter being produced by such a motion as mentioned of the region of the armpit. It is said also that when men in battle are wounded anywhere near the midriff, they are seen to laugh owing to the heat produced by the wound. This may possibly be the case. At any rate, 
it is a statement made by much more credible persons than those who tell the story of the human head how it speaks after it is cut off for so some assert and even call in homer to support them representing him as alluding to this when he wrote quote, his hand still speaking rolled into the dust close quote, instead of quote, the head of the speaker close quote. so fully was the possibility of such an occurrence accepted in caria that one of that country was actually brought to trial under the following circumstances the priest of zeus Haplosmius, had been murdered but as yet it had not been ascertained who was the assassin when certain persons asserted that they had heard the murdered man's head which had been severed from the body repeat several times the words quote, it was Cercidus that killed the man Close quote. search was thereupon made and a man of those parts who bore the name of Cercidus hunted out and put upon his trial but it is impossible that any one should utter a word when the windpipe is severed and no motion any longer derived from the lungs moreover among the barbarians where heads are chopped off with great rapidity nothing of the kind has ever yet occurred why again does not the like occur in the case of other animals than man for that none of them should laugh when their midriff is wounded is but what one would expect for no animal but man ever laughs so too there is nothing irrational in supposing that the trunk may run forwards to a certain distance after the head has been cut off seeing that bloodless animals at any rate can live and that for a considerable time after decapitation as has been set forth and explained in other passages the purposes then for which the viscera severally exist have now been stated it is of necessity upon the inner terminations of the vessels that they are developed for moisture and that of a bloody character cannot but exude at these points and it is of this solidified and coagulated that the substance of the viscera is formed thus they are of a bloody character and in substance resemble each other while they differ from other parts chapter eleven the viscera are enclosed each in a membrane for they require some covering to protect them from injury and require moreover that this covering shall be light to such requirements membrane is well adapted for it is close in texture so as to form a good protection destitute of flesh so as neither to attract nor hold moisture and thin so as to be light and not add to the weight of the body of the membranes those are the stoutest and strongest which invest the heart and the brain as is but consistent with reason for these are the parts which require most protection seeing that they are the main governing powers of life and that it is to governing powers that guard is due chapter twelve some animals have all the viscera that have been enumerated others have only some of them 
in what kind of animals this latter is the case and what is the explanation has already been stated moreover the self-same viscera present differences in different possessors for the heart is not precisely alike in all animals that have one nor in fact is any viscous whatsoever thus the liver is in some animals split into several parts while in others it is comparatively undivided such differences in its form present themselves even among the viviparous quadrupeds but are more marked in fishes and in the oviparous quadrupeds and this whether we compare them with each other or with the vivipara as for birds their liver very nearly resembles that of the vivipara for in them as in these it is of a pure and blood-like colour the reason of this is that the body in both these classes of animals admits of the freest exhalation so that the amount of foul residual matter within is but small hence it is that some of the vivipara are without any gallbladder at all for the liver takes a large share in maintaining the purity of composition and the healthiness of the body for these are conditions that depend finally and in the main upon the blood and there is more blood in the liver than in any of the other viscera the heart only excepted on the other hand the liver of oviparous quadrupeds and of fishes is as a rule of a pale yellow and there are even some in which its colour is utterly foul so as to match the foul composition of their bodies such for instance is the case in the toad the tortoise and other similar animals the spleen again varies in different animals for in those that have horns and cloven hoofs such as the goat the sheep and the like it is of a rounded form excepting when increased growth and size has caused some part of it to be lengthened out as has happened in the case of the ox in all polydactylous animals on the other hand it is elongated such for instance is the case in the pig in man and in the dog while in animals with solid hoofs it is of a form intermediate to these two being broad in one part narrow in another such for example is its shape in the horse the mule and the ass chapter thirteen the viscera differ from the flesh not only in the turgid aspect of their substance but also in position for they lie within the body whereas the flesh is placed on the outside the explanation of this is that these parts partake of the character of blood vessels and that while the former exist for the sake of the vessels the latter cannot exist without them chapter fourteen below the mid-line of the body lies the stomach placed at the end of the oesophagus when there is one and in immediate contiguity with the mouth when the oesophagus is wanting continuous with this stomach is what is called the gut these parts are present in all animals for reasons that are self-evident for it is a matter of necessity that an animal shall receive the incoming food and necessary also 
that it shall discharge the same when its goodness is exhausted. This residual matter, again, must not occupy the same place as the yet unconcocted nutriment. For, as the ingress of food and the discharge of the residue occur at distinct periods, so also must they necessarily occur in distinct places. Thus, there must be one receptacle for the ingoing food, and another for the useless residue, and between these, therefore, a part in which the change from one condition to the other may be effected. These, however, are matters which will be more suitably set forth when we come to deal with development and nutrition. We must now consider the variations presented by the stomach and its subsidiary parts, for neither in size nor in shape are these parts uniformly alike in all animals. Thus the stomach is single in all such sanguineous and viviparous animals as have teeth in front of both jaws. It is single, therefore, in all the polydactylous kinds, such as man, dog, lion, and the rest, in all the solid-hoofed animals also, such as horse, mule, ass, and in all those which, like the pig, though their hoof is cloven, yet have front teeth in both jaws. When, however, an animal is of large size and feeds on substances of so thorny and ligneous a character as to be difficult of concoction, it may in consequence have several stomachs, as, for instance, is the case with the camel. A similar multiplicity of stomachs exists also in the horned animals, the reason being that horn-bearing animals have no front teeth in the upper jaw. The camel also, though it has no horns, is yet without upper front teeth. The explanation of this is that it is more essential for the camel to have a multiple stomach than to have these teeth. Its stomach, then, is shaped like that of animals, without upper front teeth, and its dental arrangements, being such as to match its stomach, the teeth in question are wanting. They would indeed be of no service. Its food, moreover, being of a thorny character, and its tongue necessarily made of a fleshy substance, nature uses the earthy matter which is saved from the teeth to give hardness to the palate. The camel ruminates like the horned animals because its multiple stomach resembles theirs. For all animals that have horns, the sheep, for instance, the ox, the goat, the deer, and the like, have several stomachs. For, since the mouth, owing to its lack of teeth, fails to perform its due office as regards the food, this multiplicity of stomachs is intended to supply its place, the several cavities receiving the food one from the other in succession, the first taking the unreduced substances, the second the same when somewhat reduced, the third when reduction is complete, and the fourth when the whole has become a smooth pulp. Such is the reason why there is this multiplicity of parts and cavities in animals with such dentition. The names given to the several cavities are the paunch, the honeycomb, the maniplies, 
and the reed how these parts are related to each other in position and in shape must be looked for in the treatises on anatomy and the researches concerning animals birds also present variations in the part which acts as a recipient of the food and the reason for these variations is the same as in the animals just mentioned for here again it is because the mouth fails to perform its office and fails even more completely for birds have no teeth at all nor any instrument whatsoever with which to comminute or grind down their food it is i say because of this that in some of them what is called the crop precedes the stomach and does the work of the mouth while in others the esophagus either is dilated throughout or expands just before it enters the stomach so as to form a preparatory storehouse for the unreduced food or the stomach itself has a protuberance in some part or is strong and fleshy so as to be able to store up the food for a considerable period and to concoct it in spite of its not having been ground into a pulp for nature retrieves the inefficiency of the mouth by increasing the efficiency and heat of the stomach other birds there are such namely as have long legs and live in marshes that have none of these provisions but merely an elongated esophagus the explanation of this is to be found in the moist character of their food for all these birds feed on substances easy of reduction and their food being moist and not requiring much concoction their digestive cavities are of a corresponding character fish are provided with teeth which are almost invariably of the serrated kind for there is but one small section in which it is otherwise of these the fish called scarus is an example and this is probably the reason why this fish apparently ruminates though no other fishes do so for those horned animals that have no front teeth in the upper jaw also ruminate in all fishes the teeth are sharp so that these animals can divide their food though imperfectly for it is impossible for a fish to linger or spend time in the act of mastication and therefore they have no teeth that are flat or suitable for grinding for such teeth would be to no purpose the esophagus again in some fishes is entirely wanting and in the rest is but short in order however to facilitate the concoction of the food some of them as the kestrius have a fleshy stomach resembling that of a bird while most of them have numerous processes close against the stomach to serve as a sort of antechamber in which the food may be stored up and undergo putrefaction and concoction there is a contrast between fishes and birds in the position of these processes for in fishes they are placed close to the stomach while in birds if present at all they are lower down near the end of the gut some of the vivipara also have processes connected with the lower part of the gut which serve the same purpose as that stated above the whole tribe of fishes is of gluttonous appetite owing to the arrangements for 
the reduction of their food being very imperfect, and much of it consequently passing through them without undergoing concoction, and of all those are the most gluttonous that have a straight intestine. For as the passage of food in such cases is rapid, and the enjoyment derived from it in consequence but brief, it follows of necessity that the return of appetite is also speedy. It has already been mentioned that in animals with front teeth in both jaws the stomach is of small size. It may be classed pretty nearly always under one or other of two headings, namely as resembling the stomach of the dog, or as resembling the stomach of the pig. In the pig the stomach is larger than in the dog, and presents certain flat projections of moderate size, the purpose of which is to lengthen out the period of concoction, while the stomach of the dog is of small size, not much larger in calibre than the gut, and smooth on the internal surface. Not much larger, I say, than the gut, for in all animals after the stomach comes the gut. This, like the stomach, presents numerous modifications, for in some animals it is uniform when uncoiled, and alike throughout, while in others it differs in different portions. Thus in some cases it is wider in the neighbourhood of the stomach, and narrower at the other end. This is the case in dogs, and explains why they have to strain so much in discharging their excrement, while in other animals, and these the majority, it is the upper portion that is the narrower, and the lower that is of greater width. Of larger size than in any of these animals, and much convoluted, are the intestines of those that have horns. The bulgings, moreover, both of their stomach and of their intestines are more prominent in accordance with the larger bulk of their bodies generally, for the horned animals are, as a rule, of large bulk because of the thorough elaboration which their food undergoes. The gut, excepting in those animals where it runs in a straight line, invariably widens out as we get further from the stomach, and come to what is called the colon, and to a kind of cecal dilation. After this it again becomes narrower and convoluted. Then succeeds a straight portion which runs right on to the vent. This vent is known as the fundament, and is in some animals surrounded by fat, in others not so. All these varying parts have been so contrived by nature as to harmonize with the various operations that concern the food and the residue. For, as the residue gets farther on and lower down, the space to contain it becomes ampler. This is suited to the wants of those animals that, owing either to their large size, or to the heat of their digestive cavities, require more nutriment, and consume more fodder than the rest. For it allows the food to remain stationary, and undergo conversion. Neither is it without a purpose that, just as a narrower gut succeeds to the upper stomach, so also does the residual food, when its goodness is thoroughly exhausted, pass from the colon and the ample space of the lower stomach into a narrower channel, and into the spiral coil. 
for so nature can regulate her expenditure and prevent the residual substances from being discharged all at once now in all such animals as it behoves to be more temperate in the consumption of food than those we have been considering the lower stomach presents no wide and roomy spaces neither is their gut ever straight but has numerous convolutions for amplitude of space causes desire for ample food and straightness of the intestine causes quick return of appetite and thus it is that all animals whose food receptacles are either simple or spacious are of gluttonous habits the latter eating enormously at a meal the former making many meals at short intervals again since the food in the upper stomach having just been swallowed must of necessity be quite fresh while that which has reached the lower stomach must have had its juices exhausted and resemble dung it follows of necessity that there must also be some intermediate part in which the change may be effected and where the food will be neither perfectly fresh nor yet dung and thus it is that in all such animals as we are now considering there is found what is called the jejunum which is a part of the small gut of the gut that is which comes next to the stomach for this jejunum lies between the upper cavity which contains the yet unconcocted food and the lower cavity which holds the residual matter which by the time it has got here is quite worthless there is a jejunum in all animals but it is only plainly visible in those of larger bulk and in these only when they have abstained from food for a certain time for thus alone can one hit on the exact period when the food lies halfway between the upper and lower cavities a period which is very short for the time occupied in the transition of food is but brief in females this jejunum may occupy any part whatsoever of the upper intestine but in males it comes just before the cecum and the lower stomach chapter fifteen the substance called rennet is found in all animals that have a multiple stomach but only in the hare among animals whose stomach is single in the former the rennet neither occupies the large paunch nor yet the reticulum nor the terminal abomasus but is found in the cavity which separates this terminal one from the two first namely in the so-called psalterium it is the thick character of their milk which causes all these animals to have rennet whereas in animals with a single stomach the milk is thin and consequently no rennet is formed it is this difference in thickness which makes the milk of horned animals coagulate while that of animals without horns does not rennet forms in the hare because it feeds on herbage that has juice like that of the fig for juice of this kind coagulates the milk in the stomach of the young animal why it is in the psalterium that rennet is formed in animals with multiple stomachs has been stated in the problems end of chapter fifteen and end of book three